This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. And now, a Blaze Media podcast. Man stands with America. This is Freedom's Disciple with Jonathan Dunn on the Blaze Radio Network. Hello, America. Thank you so much for tuning in today. This, of course, is the show where you come for the accent and you stay for the principles. I hope you and your family had a wonderful, peaceful, blessed Easter. I know I did. It was very low key. I went to church several times, went Good Friday. Holy Saturday, Easter Sunday, and boy was it, boy was it what I needed. Today's show is going to be a bit different. I am sure, like you, that you're sick and tired of what's going on in your country. Equally, I'm sure you're sick and tired of hearing about it. I know I am. You know, next week and for the next two weeks, I'm doing a special. I've got a guest on this show, Justin Haskins. That name may sound familiar to you, and it should. Justin is the co-author of the Glenn Beck book, The Great Reset. Why am I doing this? Because I need to talk to someone who knows exactly what the Great Reset is. I do my research. I'm not dumb or naive on the Great Reset. But next week, we're going to break it into two parts. Next week is going to be breaking down the Great Reset and what it is and making it as simple for everyone to understand. I don't know how much you guys share this show with your family and your friends, but next week's show and the week after are designed for sharing with everyone. Not to get my name out there or not to make the show grow, but so they know what's coming. And the second week of it is going to be focused solely on solutions. What we can do at a federal level, what we can do at a state level, and what we can do individually. Because we must survive. The reason I'm sharing this is not to plug the next couple of weeks show, it's because I need your help. What questions do you want me to ask? I know what questions I'm asking. But if you can ideally DM me on Twitter or Facebook your messages. Or if you have to leave a comment on one of my posts, do. But I can't guarantee I'll see it. But if you DM me, I will. Now, that's on to this week's show. What do you want me to talk about this week? I look around 
Ukraine is still the same. Obviously, there's some developments. Our country in America is still divided. I could talk to you about the Easter Bunny. Oh, boy. I could talk to you about Elon Musk and the, the poison pill. There are so much crazy stories in this country. I could talk to you about the fiasco that happened in this country on Wednesday night where literally the whole of D.C. was evacuated because one plane was not responsive. And I'm not going to lie, when I heard this story, I went, oh my God, what's happening? Because what your country's doing behind the scenes with Russia, is this the start of an attack on the home soil to get you into war? Please God, no. And I started to worry, and then within seconds of it being shut down, it was like, no, nothing to worry about. And then it came out later that night. Ah, oh, the, the plane that was unresponsive, it wasn't a terrorist plane. It wasn't even a domestic, you know, like a United Airlines or an American Airlines. No, it was the Navy or the, the Air Force with the skydiving team to get into National Stadium. You caused that panic for that? Do you all not know how to talk to each other in D.C.? Of course we don't. Why would any agency want to talk to each other? I could talk to you about all these stories and get you angrier and get you, quite frankly, more pissed off. But I'm not going to do that. I want to talk to you about how to save America. One of the reasons I love America, and there are many, if you've listened to this show for any period of time, you know I, there are, I could talk to you all day long about why I love your country. But you're the only country that actually got it. Got it. What is it? You got it. That you sensed that, you know what, the way man does things is not the best way to follow. Why? Because man is fallible. Man is imperfect. Man is flawed. You can take the best among us. And you follow them and they still will lead to a bad outcome. What we need to do is follow a certain set of principles that are much higher. One of those principles is we don't base anything we do or say on a collective, on a bias. We believe in the individual and that the individual is sovereign. Why is this important to what I want to talk to you about today? Saving America. You know, one of the questions, I'm back on the road speaking now. And one of the things, again, if you listen to this show on a regular basis, you know I struggle with short answers. And after giving a presentation, I kind of feel in my heart that people have heard enough of me. And I'll do question answers as long as there's questions. But I always try and make the question or the answers as short as possible. Even though my soul feels like oh, there's so much I want to say. But one of the questions I get is, how do we save this country? How do we save America? How do you answer that in 30 seconds, a minute, two minutes? I could talk to you about quickly about voting better, you know, promoting the Constitution, supporting good candidates, serving others, get involved in the local community, prep, don't add debt to the country. 
Stand up and make your voices heard at every opportunity. Focus at a local level. Don't focus as much on president. Focus on more on your school board or your sheriff or your commissioner or your local state rep or state senator. But here's the thing. There is no one thing we can do to save America. You see, America is a country that changed the world for many reasons. But one of them was you appreciated the individual. You appreciated to a greater extent that everyone is different. But not only is it cool to say, well, everyone's different, John. Of course, everyone's different. But that everyone has a different set of skills. If we're going to save this a wonderful country, the first thing we need to do, and I don't, this is not the purpose of today's show, but we need to get out of the political game and take off the political hat once in a while. Why? Because that's us abdicating our responsibility to America. It's not good enough. It's not good enough to simply say, well, I vote. Even if you vote for the most conservative person in every election, what do you do for the other 364 days that year you voted and the 365 days a year that you didn't vote in the off year? That's a lot of time. Is politics important? Yes. Is it important that we get good men and women of good character, of good principles in D.C. and at the state level? Yes. But what else? You see, if we want to save America, ladies and gentlemen, we need to start acting ourselves. We need to start unleashing our skills, the skills that we were born with. This is what made America exceptional. Why? You unleash the energy and individual genius of man to a greater extent than any other country in the history of the world. It's why I talk at the end of each show, no matter what I talk about, we could talk about foreign policy, we could talk about the Constitution, we could talk about the news of the day, we could talk about politics, we could talk about the Great Reset, or we could talk about the stories I want to share today, but you will always hear me say at the end of the message, America is great because Americans are good. It's not that you're better people than any other country. It's because you can change your country more than any other set of people can. The question isn't whether you are good. The question is, do you want to be good? We all have our own skills. And if we're going to start turning this wonderful country around, the country that is the greatest country in the world, the greatest country that has ever existed, we're going to have to act. And we're going to have to find out what our role is in that. Is this easy? No. Heck, I've been doing this for a long time. I'm still trying to find my role. I'm still trying to find out what exactly I'm supposed to do. I won't lie. Right now, I feel like I actually kind of know. I know what I need to do. I just have no earthly idea how I'm supposed to do it. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. You see, it's easy to think, well, how we solve this country is like a one set of rules or one set of policies. Or if once people act every way, the same way it's 
it's all good. It's not. We need both or three or four different ways to solve this country. Let me give you one example of my field. You see, my job, quote unquote, is to try and tell you why America is exceptional. My job, I believe, is to inspire you. My job is to get behind this microphone and every speech I give and make you feel every word I say with passion. To make you hear about the country you live in and make you feel something. To make you feel pride. To make you feel love. But to make you feel that, wow, we really do have it really extraordinary here. Despite all our flaws, even today, that our country is still special. That our country is still worth fighting for. There are plenty of people who do this. But you see, in my field, there's two ways I can get you to do that. It's called the stick and the egg. You see, there are people today, and maybe this is what America needs, and I can't honestly provide it. Because I know my flaws. I know my limitations better than anyone. And maybe they're not fully limitations. It's just because of my mindset. My depression. But I know there are things I can't do. You see, there's the stick. Where they will get up and tell you how you should act. And if you don't act, you're part of the problem. And their whole job is to get you to act out of shame. How their whole job is to get you to act out of fear. It's a good policy. By the way, this is also a biblical principle. If you want to put a name on this because it's a biblical principle, and America is supposed to be a Christian nation, it's the John the Baptist version. You know, the more aggressive message. I love John the Baptist, but I'll be honest, I am no John the Baptist for many reasons. I am not fit to lace that man's sandals. But there's also the egg. In scripture versions, this is the Jesus message. Where you inspire. Where you encourage. Where you don't act out of fear, you act out of love, you act out of hope. You act because it's the best thing for yourself and your country. I'm not trying to say I'm Jesus in this role model because if I'm not fit to lace John the Baptist sandals, I'm not even worthy to be in his within a hundred miles of Jesus. But that's the only message I can give. I can't do the stick message. I never could. It's not my personality. And I could moan and bitch and complain about that. I could try and even fake it. I can't do it. My job is to get you to be inspired. My job is to share stories. Because one of the problems that we face in society, and I know there are many, oh boy are there many, but one of the things we have forgotten to do is tell stories. Today's show is going to be a bit different, because I want to share three stories with you. Of course, it had to be three, right? The number I can't pronounce. It couldn't be two. It couldn't be four. It couldn't be six. It had to be three. 
Yes, and just for those who want to make a joke, yes, I'm saying the number three, not the something that grows out of the ground. I want to share, share three stories with you. And a lot of people are going to scoff at the first two stories because they're from the Bible. They're from Easter. And if you're scoffing, and this is the point where you're like, hey, oh, this is where I tune out of them. I say stop. Because the first story, I guarantee you, the ending is going to surprise you of where I'm going to take the story. But we need to start sharing Christian stories as well. Why? Because I hear from people all around America about how America is a Christian nation. What are you? We need to start admitting that if we want to start solving America and fixing America, maybe the first place we should look at is the pulpits. Look at our church. Do we preach what's in the Bible? Or are we cowards today? It's ironic, and I did not use cowards by just design. I thought that word out because it links into my first story. I'm going to share three stories with you today. I beg you to listen to them. But if you do nothing else and you want to dismiss the Christian stories, fine. I beg you to listen to the end of the show and listen to the third story, which is an American story, which should be known far and wide, but isn't. And it reflects to an issue that is still simmering within your culture. And this story, I'm going to give you in full context. But I guarantee you, when you're listening to this story, you think that I'm going to make some point relating to Jesus. As you hear this story, I'm not. And I'm going to say it in rather circular terms, just for those who are not Christian, who don't really fully understand the life of Jesus. Because the point still stands. This is how we save America. I said in the last segment that I didn't use the word cowards lightly. Think about that word as I'm sharing this story. See, a long time ago, around 0 AD, a special baby was born. And this baby was claimed to be the Messiah, the Savior of the world. You can believe that. Some do, some don't. Your belief in that point is not needed for this story. And you see, this baby had so much power, had so much fear that the political leaders of the day, specifically Herod, were so clinging to power that they made an order. That this one child was going to change the world so much that he ordered every baby under the age of two to be executed. Seems harsh, but that is the fear that one person can change the world. And then Jesus grew up and he moved from town to town. He had to move because people were out for him, wanted to kill him. Had to move to learn. And then as Jesus turned into an adult, 
He started to expand his ministry, quote unquote. Started to learn life. And eventually would go and find some disciples. And they would go from town to town. Loving people. Healing people. Caring for people. And you see, one of the reasons he was rejected, both at his crucifixion and all the way through life, was because surely we believe someone is going to come and impact the world, but surely not Jesus. Like surely the the Messiah, the Son of God, would come with great majesty, with great fanfare, with trumpets blazing. Surely not this this kid who doesn't have a crown, who doesn't have a title, who doesn't have majesty, who does not have fame and fortune. He doesn't come from the right family. Surely this Messiah, the Son of God, wouldn't come from Mary and Joseph. Surely God would have more grandiose plans for his son, the savior of the world, than to come through those people. You see, he didn't have any special skill, quote unquote. He did, but in human terms. He wasn't a great politician. He wasn't a great accountant. He wasn't a great speaker. He wasn't a great teacher. But he was all of those When I say great, I mean society considered him great. This is a kid and an adult and a man who was rejected when he taught in his own town. He had no special beauty. You would look at Jesus and you would just see just another man. Surely that can't be the Son of God. Many times people would come to him. And one of the most powerful sayings in the Bible is when people would say to him or to others around him, surely not him. The Bible would say, come and see. You see, there are many reasons Christianity is amazing. Even if you don't agree with Christian, even if you're not a Christian, it's an amazing story. Because it's a story that we need to learn. To those who say America is not exceptional, I say go to another country and then come back to America and see. Oh, America is racist. History is evil and vile and it's just so wrong. Read it and see. And his disciples eventually would lumber 12. And they would travel from town to town and all Jesus would do is tell stories and love people. You see, Jesus from his very birth had a unique talent of pissing people off. Excuse my French. They wanted to murder him at birth. And they pretty much wanted to murder him all day, every day. You see, Jesus took what man considered to be an org chart or a set of classes, if we want to use modern day language, and said, I don't care about what you think in human terms. Oh, I'm not supposed to sit with the tax collectors and the prostitutes? Really? Well, that's the very people I'm going to sit with. 
He destroyed what man thought. Again, bringing you back to American exceptionalism for a moment. Man, through its best intentions or its worst intentions or just through its ignorance, will always find ways to make things the way they are. And then while we are incapable of amazing things, we are capable of building buildings that reach the sky, of technology that literally we are talking about going to Mars, of cars. We have so many amazing talents in our possession. We have been blessed, but we are also capable of being so small-minded. How many times today do we look around at people in, from the wrong state? Let me use my state as an example, the great state of Oklahoma. When I tell people I live there, you know what eventually comes up? And it usually comes up right near the start. Oh, that's such a poor state. Really? That's how you want to define a state? Poor? Well, let me tell you this. I would rather live in the quote-unquote poor state of the union called Oklahoma than live in one of the richest states like California or New York. Why? Because I'm not here for fame or fortune. I'm here because I have a pretty great life in Oklahoma. We need to start changing the way we think. But how many times do we hear people look at people and go, they can't change the world. Oh, they're not part of the right race. They're not part of the right sexuality. They're not part of the cool club. Surely not them. How do you know? But these disciples, the 12 disciples would follow Jesus and they would go from town to town telling stories and healing people and meeting with people. And there are many miracles which I won't talk to you about. But you see, when Jesus got a name and a reputation for he's starting to gather crowds, he's starting to be a threat, he's starting to upset the apple cart. What happened? Those in power would send spies. And then they would routinely try and question Jesus to get him to answer questions. And their hope wasn't to learn. Their intent wasn't to learn from Jesus. Their intent was to trap him in his words and then call him a blasphemer. They didn't have good honor. Why am I sharing this part of the story? Look around at social media today. How many people today ask questions to learn, to see another viewpoint? Or how many people ask questions or make statements purely to look you for you to trap yourself in your words so we can slam you? We can call you out for what you are. And eventually it would happen at his year 33 years old. He was betrayed by one of his disciples, one of those closest to him. He was handed over to those in power. All he had done was tell stories and love on people and heal people. Last week was Easter. One of my problems with Christianity has been we gloss over Good Friday far too long. We just want to get to Sunday. To He's risen. He's resurrected. The tomb is empty. Yay. Hallelujah. And that's important. 
But we also need to take in what happened on Good Friday. What man is capable of. You see, despite 2,022 years passing since the Romans crucified Jesus. Sorry, that math is not right. It's just under 2,000 years. I apologize. They are still historically one of the best set of people to torture you. They have vindictive ways. They could bring you to your very knees more than we can even do today because they were so sick and twisted. And when Jesus was brought into those in power, the political power, not the religious power, he said, well, I'll give him a beating that he will never forget. So what did they do to him? Well, the first thing they did was they would take him and they would bend him over a stone and it was a big stone so it would go into his groin type of pelvic area and then they would bend him over and the reason they would bend you over is so that your back was fully exposed every muscle was stretched so that they could hit every part of you and back then there was a weapon called a flagellum this is really sick. It was a piece of leather that had nine tails of leather hanging off of it. And at the end of each of those nine strips of leather, there was a fist size of metal, rock, and bone with jagged edges. And the aim of this fist size of metal, bone, and rock, it was designed to grab skin. And what they would do is as Jesus was stretched over this rock. He would go to his side and he would grab that flagellum and he would whip Jesus and then pull it back. Grabbing and exposing skin. Exposing nerves. And then he would go to the other side of his back and do the exact same. When he was finished with your back. He would go to your side. And then go to your front, looking at you in the eye and pulling it off the back of your head and your neck. Back then, they found out that 40 of these lashes would kill anybody. So what did they do? Naturally, they whipped Jesus 39 times. After this beating, they mocked him. They spat on him. They got a crown of thorns. And then just placed it on his head. They melded it into his head with a hammer. They would then cast lots over his possessions. Then they brought him to the streets. And after giving him the beating of his life, bringing him within one lash of a certain death, Pilate would say to the people, what do you want me to do with him? And how did the people respond? People who saw Jesus, had maybe been around Jesus, had seen the impact on his story, had seen his parable teaching, had seen the love and healing he had brought. How did the people respond that day? Murder him! Kill him. Crucify him. 
Pilate even gave them a choice. I can release one man. Who would you like me to release? Jesus, who you say is the Son of God, the Messiah, who has done nothing wrong that I can find, or Barabbas. And yet again, the crowd shouted, Crucify him! Crucify him! Give us Barabbas! It then gets to the point where they are going to crucify him. And he's brought and made to bring up the cross. Carry his own cross, his own death warrant. He's mocked, he's scourged, he's spit on. They mock him by saying, well, you're supposed to be the king, the son of God. Surely if you want to, you can click your fingers and get out of here. But you don't, so clearly you're not. Then they would bring him to the hill called Golgotha, the place of skulls, and they would crucify him. They would lie the cross down on the ground, and they would place you on it. And then starting with one hand, they would nail into his wrist, and through his wrist, nail you to the cross. Start with one hand, and then to the another, and then his feet. And then they hung you up for the world to see. None of this sounds like fun, does it? Why did I share this story? This sounds like a Jesus story, John. It's not. It is a Jesus story, sorry. But the point I want to make about saving America is I'm not going to be crazy enough or naive enough or set the bar so high that I'm going to say, well, you know what you need to do? You need to be like Jesus. I always try and be like Jesus. I try my best, but boy, do I fail. I was going to say I fail on a daily basis. I probably fail on a minute-by-minute basis. I'm not going to tell you to be Jesus. The point of this story is, if we want to save America, what we need to be is obviously be Jesus if we can. If you're special out there and you find it easy to be Jesus, go be Jesus. Maybe that's your role. But the point of the story is not to be Jesus. The point of the story is to be the disciples. You see, the disciples were giving a simple rule. There was 11 disciples after his death. And there are many times and many stories about what the disciples saw after Jesus was resurrected. But the simple story combining all of them together was this. That you, yes you, must go and share the good news. Go and make disciples of the earth. And yes, some towns won't be welcoming to you. You're not to get angry. You're not to blaspheme. You're not to look down on them. You're simply to wipe the dust from your feet and move on. So what's the point of this story in relating to saving America? Imagine you were one of those disciples. Jesus chose you. And deep in your heart, because you're a sinner, because none of the disciples came from the right background, quote unquote, they weren't exactly the most honorable men prior to becoming disciples. You know, some of them were tax collectors, i.e. Matthew. Some of them had many different stories 
about stealing fish, quote-unquote, in human terms. It's easy to look around and say, wow, you'd think the Son of Man would choose the 12 most honorable people. He didn't. He chose the disciples for a reason. And you've lived this life with Jesus. You've gone from town to town. You've seen hundreds and thousands of people he has healed. You've seen the impact on his life. And you believe he is the Son of Man. You believe he is the Messiah. And then you see this as his outcome. This unimaginable pain after being betrayed by one of your own. How tempting would you be to see everything Jesus went through? Everything, and I just told you a snapshot. To go, you know what? These people won't appreciate me. You know what? I don't want to end my life that way. You know what? I know Jesus told me to share the good news. But you know what? I I don't think I can. I don't think, you know, I'm not smart enough. I'm not brave enough. Or You know, I I need to go back to my family. I've left my family for Jesus a long time. I, I did my bit. How easy would it be to convince yourself? Over this weekend, maybe pause this show for a minute. Just think about that story. How easy would it be if you were a disciple to see everything Jesus went through and go, well, Jesus can't change the world. What chance have I got? Or out of fear that you just don't like pain, that you don't want to have your body beaten and whipped, where you're unrecognizable to your own mother. But they did. And thank God they did. Why am I sharing this as a way to save America? Look around at what we have today. And I don't mean this to make you feel bad, but just, and I don't like generalizations, but it has to be asked. Have we and this world become soft? Have we become arrogant? Have we forgotten our responsibilities? I believe in freedom at all costs was the tagline in the manifesto of a group I spoke to last week, the True Texas Project. And that sounds great, and by God, does it read well in the middle of their manifesto. I believe in freedom at all costs. But how many people do? They might believe in freedom, but do they believe in freedom if they have to give up their iPhone, their iPad, their fancy car, their heated seats in their car? Have we become so comfortable because we have access to so much and that we fooled ourselves to think that we can just continue on breaking the laws of nature's law and nature's God and get away with it? If we want to save America, we need more than 12 disciples, but we need people to go share the good news and risk it all. By the way, to those thinking this is only a Christian story, This is what your nation did at your revolution. The 56 men who signed the Declaration of Independence had nothing to gain and everything to lose. They were not cowards. Many did lose everything. It's time to ask ourselves, are we men and women? Are we mice and sheep?
second story, and this one's shorter. You don't want to miss the third story. If you love America, you need to hear the third story. You know, just from a pure Christian point of view, Christianity obviously clearly historically adapted from Judaism. You know, Jesus was a Jew. I know some people don't like to admit that, but that's who he was. He was a Jew. But one of the changes that happened when from the Old Testament to the New Testament, from the Judea way of life to the Christian way of life, and there are subtle changes. The law became more advanced. But one of the things that made Jesus different and Christians different is back in the old days, back pre-Christ, how you would solve your sin was you would go and offer a sacrifice to the high priest. You would offer a donkey or you'd offer a goat or you'd offer a sheep. And if you understand Christianity from a biblical point of view, you know all that did was cover your sin. It didn't remove your sin. One of the big changes, which I'm not going to talk about, and but for this story is, that Jesus came and washed the sins of the world away. It didn't just cover your sin in his blood. He washed them away with his blood. But one of the things that's very key, and that one of the attributes that I believe is missing in society today, which will lead me to my second story, is Jesus would say, I require mercy, not sacrifice. You want to start saving America? And this is so hard. And trust me, I know this is hard. We are so lacking in mercy today. I want to tell you a story. And ask yourself a question. How easy would you do this? The same story I just told you about Jesus. Going through all that pain. Having man turn on him. Having man yell, murder him, crucify him, kill him. After everything you've done, you've come in peace. After going through all that pain, been whipped 39 times. Just imagine it. Imagine 39 of them. Feeling every nerve in your body. Having to carry the cross to the place where you will die. Imagine going through all that pain. And then as you're laying on the ground and they're literally hammering nails into your hands. One of the things I learned this week, because my pastor is, is a unique pastor, in the sense that he was born in America, but he is Egyptian. And one of the things why he's amazing is because he actually understands and researches the different ways and the different tenses in the way the Bible is written. And in the Bible, you hear the saying, forgive them, Father, they know not what they do. Well, one of the things I learned this week is that in the Bible, when you go back to the original meaning, the tense is wrong. He didn't just say it once. He said it many times. Imagine going through that pain, that suffering, living that life of being selfless. And that's your end come. And all you can say is forgive them. As the nails are being rammed into your hands and wrists. 
with one wham, bam, into your wrist. Forgive them, Father, in the other hand, bam. Forgive them, Father, into the feet, bam. Forgive them, Father, they know not what they do. It's so easy. I posted this on Twitter on Friday and and, uh, Facebook. And so many people wanted to point out, well, there's real evil. Why should we forgive these people? Look, I know there is real evil. You don't want to live inside my head. I'm doing a lot of research. And uh, quite honestly, one of the problems I have just on a personal note is I don't know how to share what's in my head with you without freaking you all out. I know what's coming. Why do you think I work so hard? Why do you think I'm working for free? Why do you think I get behind this microphone? Why do you think I travel all the miles I do? Because I know what's coming. I'm all in to save your country, not because I'm somehow more noble or more better than you. It's because I see the really dark clouds coming. And I would rather risk everything I have now and be poor and free later on than do nothing and see these dark clouds become a reality and live in the most tyrannical government and world that we have ever known to man, where they literally control every aspect of your life and be rich. Why? Because even if I was rich, quote-unquote, or had the possessions I still have, they would take them off me in a moment's notice. I'm not all in because I'm somehow better or noble than anyone. I'm just doing it because I know what's coming. So I see what's coming. I see the evil. Heck, Klaus Schwab is like if you were drawing up a a movie tomorrow for a bad guy. That's a pretty cool bad guy's name. I could see him in James Bond. The name's Bond, James Bond. What's your mission? I have to take out Klaus Schwab because he's just a bad guy. It just sounds natural. It sounds normal. I see Agenda 2030. I see Agenda 2050. I see what's happening in your country. I see the complete and utter failures in this country of your political class, of both sides. So trust me, you don't need to tell me what you're naive. But is everyone in this country who's on the wrong side actually bad and evil? Or are they just ignorant? Are they just going along with what man has said? You see, I believe maybe if I was to give a percentage of people on the wrong side of history, 1% are truly evil and 99% are just going along. Because they are so filled with their own self-righteousness that they believe people should be destroyed from Twitter, from Facebook. They believe that they are so self-righteous that they are saving the planet and we are the enemy. But how many people today would say, forgive them, they know not what they do. If we want to start solving America's problems, if we want to start solving Christianity's problems, maybe, just maybe, we need to take a leap and start showing more mercy. By the way, this is not a new story. This is the human story. It's so easy to look at other people. Imagine your crime is a lie. It's so easy to say, well, you know what? Yeah, I did wrong. 
But you know what? I didn't. Do, I I'm not them. Them in this case is murderers. I'm not them. Yeah, I lied, but I'm not a murderer. Or yeah, I lied, but you know I'm not them. I'm not like them. And who are them? They're the rapists. Yeah, I lied, and yeah, it's wrong, but I'm not them. I'm not a burglar or a thief. Yeah, I lied, but I'm not like them. Who are them? People who watch child porn online or similar crime. It's easy to fill yourself with self-righteousness. Yeah, look, I'm bad. Look, I'm not saying I'm perfect. I have my own flaws. But I'm not them. And it's so easy to cast the stone at other people. Maybe if we want to start solving America, we need to stop thinking about them and start thinking about ourselves and start living up to the best person we can be. Are we going to be perfect? No, not even close. But we need to start living up to being the best person we can, but knowing that we will fall. And when we fall, we require mercy from people. We require forgiveness. I'm sorry, I messed up. I'm sorry I you know I didn't do it or I did something wrong. Please forgive me. Maybe just maybe we'd be a better place if we actually had that mercy. And as we demanded from other people, we were willing to give it to other people. point america where you've all been waiting for i want to hear about the american story john well i'm going to give it to you i'm going to read something out to you and it's something you all know but how many know the story behind this oh say can you see by the dawn's early light what so proudly we hail at the twilight's last gleaming Whose broad stripes and bright stars through the perilous fight. Over the ramparts we watched were so gallantly streaming. And the rocket's red glare, the bombs bursting in air, gave proof through the night that our flag was still there. Oh, say does that star-spangled banner yet wave over the land of the free and the home of the brave. These are the words, or some of the words, to your national anthem. Many years ago, and even to this day, it's a cultural issue. People don't stand for the national anthem. And of course, it became part of your culture. I'm sure many of you might have said, well, I stand for the flag, but I only kneel for God. It became hotly contested. Well, I believe in freedom. I have a free right to free speech. If I don't want to stand for the national anthem, I won't stand. Honest question for you on both sides. To everyone who said, I don't need to stand because that national anthem is evil, vile, and racist, and every other word you want to say in it. But likewise, for all the people who are the most vocal on social media, sharing all their memes and their pics, how many know the story 
of the national anthem. You see, one of the things I get accused of, especially by my non-American friends and family, is that I've just got this big bias for America. That everything in America you just automatically assume is better. I've studied some national anthems. For me, the American national anthem is the best, not because it's American, but because of the story behind us. But how many people know the story? And how many people, if they knew the story, would feel more passionate about their country? Do you know the story? Because I'm about to tell you. You see, one of the things that I love about America, or the idea of America, was you had this amazing American spirit. It was undeniable. You couldn't defeat it. Everyone knows this in war. In some ways, you're kind of seeing this in Ukraine right now. You see, you can beat man, but you can't beat a spirit that is determined to be free. Russia's kind of learning this lesson in Ukraine. Those people, whether you like them or hate them, seem pretty determined to be, yeah, you're not having our land. But I want to talk to you about Ukraine or Russia or Putin. I want to talk to you about your national anthem. See, the American people were a set of people from humble backgrounds who just wanted to be free. And you declared your independence. You signed the Declaration of Independence and you went off to war. You went off and fought the British. Quite an audacious statement. You were a bunch of pilgrims, a bunch of farmers. You didn't have guns. Didn't have shoes, didn't have fancy clothes, didn't have bedding. Going off and fighting the British army with guns, with cannons, with fancy uniforms, with shoes, with bedding, with food, with better strategy potentially than you. You really think you could win? Yes. Why? Because we're an American and we are determined to be free. And of course, during war, the Revolutionary War was no different. There will always be casualties of war and there will always be prisoners of war. And at this point in time in the Revolutionary War, there was lots of prisoners of war on both sides. The conflict with Britain had gone on months. And Robert Francis, sorry, Francis Scott Key, not Robert, Francis Scott Key was a lawyer. He wrote your national anthem, our song. Our song that has become so divisive, yet no one seems to know the amazing story behind it. What is the story? Well, Francis Scott Key was given permission to negotiate on behalf of what would later become America. You see, because there were prisoners of war on both sides, America's founders reached out to the king and to the navy and said, hey, let us have a negotiation about potentially swapping prisoners. And they agreed. And the 
admiral of one of the ships was about a thousand yards off the coast and gave permission for Robert Scott Key. He had approval on behalf of the king and Robert or Francis Scott Key. I don't know why I'm saying Robert. Francis Scott Key had permission on behalf of the founders to negotiate. So they sit in and he rows over on the boat and they have a sit down and they have a conversation. And finally, they come to an agreement. What is that agreement? It's a strict exchange of prisoners of war, one English soldier for one American soldier. One for one. As you can imagine, this is the type of victory or exchange that the founders needed. And buoyed by this quote-unquote victory, this grace, you know, compromise, Francis Scott Key is like jubilant, is excited. He's kind of proud of his work. And he's so happy with this agreement, he goes down to the hold of the ship. Down to where the pilgrims, the prisoners, the American prisoners of war were held. He was kind of taken back by what he saw because the conditions weren't great. They were dirty. The cages filled with prisoners were over full. They were in chains. And after being taken back for a second, he delivered a message which everyone probably there was desperate to hear. What was that message? That message was, tonight, gentlemen, you are free. We have done an agreement with the British for a prisoner exchange. You will go home tonight. Think about how if you were one of those prisoners of war in those situations, you probably even weren't fed the best. And you get told, tonight, you are free. You're excited. You're like, thank you, God. And as he goes back on the deck, Francis Scott Key once again sees the Admiral. And he says, I must tell you something. We're going to agree and hold our word to doing the prisoner exchange. But you see, it's time I told you something. Francis Scott Key says, what do you need to tell me? The agreement is pointless. You see, we're sick of this war and we're going to end it tonight. And he points off into the distance and Francis Scott Key follows his finger. And he says, you see that fort, which is Fort Wayne? You see that fort over there? You see on that rampart where the American flag stands, where your flag stands? We have sent terms for your surrender to those in charge of your war. And we have made it absolutely crystal clear. Take down that flag and surrender and once again become part of the British colony. Or we're going to bomb that fort into tomorrow. There's something you need to know about Fort Wayne. Because Francis Scott Key has reportedly have told the Admiral this. You can't do this. That's not fair. That is not a military base. That is largely filled with women and children. He said, we 
don't care. They have a way out. If they simply take down the flag, that will be your sign of surrender. And Francis Scott Key asked him, but how are you going to do this? How is this even possible? To which the admiral pointed the exact opposite direction. Out not towards the land, but out towards the sea. And he said, you see all those dots right there? That, sir, is the entire British war fleece. It will be here in two and a half hours. And then we have strict orders to destroy that fort. All you have to do on land is lower that flag and the war's over. He was distraught. He had seen the pain and suffering inflicted on this war. And just a few minutes ago, he went down into the hold to tell the men they were free. He now had to go down to the holds and tell them what he had just been told. Once again, imagine you're one of those prisoners of war in the hold. You've lived through the war. You've been captured. You've lived through the captivity and the horrible, vile conditions under the British. Just mere moments ago, you're told you're free. And now you're pretty much told the war is over. Some time passes. He probably had to console some men. And some time passes and now the British war fleet is all lining up side by side by side by side ready to point their guns at Fort Wayne. Francis Scott Key at this point leaves the hold and goes on deck. And he said, I'll go up on deck and I will shout down everything that has happened. It becomes twilight. And the fleet starts bombing. Boom! 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 It's constant. There are no pauses. Boom! 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 All you hear is cannon after cannon after cannon after cannon. At this point in the bombing, the sky is now dark. And all you can see in the sky is pure darkness but light from each cannonball been fired towards Fort Wayne. Boom! 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 At this point, the men, after hearing all these booms, start shouting up to Francis Scott Key, What's happening? What's going on? Are they hitting? And he says, Yes, another direct hiss. Yes, another hiss. Yes, another hiss. Yes, another hiss. And then he is hit with an unusual question. Because this is the most important question those men of war asked. Yes, but is the flag still there? Is the flag still standing? Have they given up? Yes. Please tell us the flag is still there. To which Francis Scott Key would reply, It's still standing, boys. One hour passed. Boom, boom, boom. 
to our passes. Is the flag still there? Tell us it's still standing. He says, yes, it's still there. Three hours pass. Boom, boom, boom. The British are not relenting. They're more determined than ever. Many direct hits have hit the flag at this point. Every time the bomb, the cannonball would explode near the flag, it would illuminate the sky and you would see red. But the flag was still standing. After every bomb, every boom, the boys would shout, Is it still there? And yes, Robert Francis Scott Key would say, Yes, it is. After about three hours or four hours, the Admiral, who Francis Scott Key had discussed and agreed the terms of the prisoner exchange, came over to him and said, What the hell is wrong with your people? Don't they realize this war is impossible for them to win? Don't they realize it's best they just surrender? And Francis Scott Key remembered the words of George Washington. And he told him, he said, the thing you need to understand, Admirable, is the thing that sets the Christian, American Christian apart from people around the world is he will die on his feet before he will live on his knees. At this point, the fort was pretty much decimated. The war in their eyes was won, and the admiral changes the rules for the cannons. He said, I don't want you to hit the fort anymore. I want you to target that flag. Let us bomb that flag into existence. Focus solely on that flag. And then the admiral comes back. And once again he goes to Francis Scott Key. He says, we have just told all our artillery to focus solely on the flag. But I got to be honest, I don't know what's going on. Because you see, my recon, my reconnaissance teams have told me we've hit it directly multiple times. We don't know how it's still there. But it won't be there for long. For the next three hours, every gun in the British war fleet targeted that flag. It was an unmerciful barrage of cannon fire. Boom! 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 At this point... All you hear, or Francis Scott Key can hear, is not the cannons. All he hears is the men down on base, down in the holes. Those men are not praying for themselves. Those men are not praying for anything else but to keep that flag high. As history would tell us, the prayer went as follows. God, please keep that flag flying where we last saw it. The three hours pass. And the flag is still there. 
all the prisoners shouting up to Francis Scott Key. Is it still there? Has to be. It is. Is it still there? Please tell us. Lord, please tell us it's still flying where we last saw it. He says, yes, it's still there. The thing you need to understand about the flag at this point is while the flag is still standing, it's still waving, it is beaten, battered, and beyond bruised. You see, the flag still stood, but the pole of the flag was was at this crazy angle, an angle that didn't look natural. And the flag is in shreds. Sunrise comes after all that bombing. And as this history would report, this morning it was a heavy mist. But the rampart where that flag was taller than the mist. And the flag was still there. Francis Scott Key leaves the boat, goes ashore and sees, goes to inspect the fort. And all he sees is a beaten and battered fort. It is destroyed. It is pummeled. But the flag is still there. He gets up and he inspects the flag, goes to the rampart. And what does he see? He sees multiple direct hits. But the thing you need to understand is how did it still stand was the sacrifice. You would not have seen from the ship a sacrifice. He could not tell the men in the hold, but it was a uniquely American sacrifice. You see, men kept that flag standing tall. You see, men, when the flag would fall, the men would pick up the flag and hold it, even though they knew what that meant. It meant certain debt. But they did it anyway. Because as much as they knew for sure what risking their lives to hold that flag up meant. It meant a certain debt for them. They also knew what it meant if the flag fell. So they held it until they died. And then a direct hit would come and those people holding the flag would die. And more men would rush to hold the flag. And they would die. And then more men would rush in and keep that flag standing tall. Remember I said a minute ago that the flag was at a crazy angle? It was at a crazy angle, not because it had been bombed and it was twisted and beaten. It was at a crazy angle. Because at the bottom of that flagpole, were layers of bodies. Body on top of body on top of body on top of body on top of body. Dead. Pulverized. Holding that flag. So the next time you hear the national anthem, the next time you hear someone saying, you should automatically stand for the flag, ask them, do you know what the flag means? Do you know the national anthem? Or the next time you hear someone going, I'm not standing for that racist, colonialist, evil, vile, and racist history. Ask them, do you know what those words mean? When you hear that story, do these words mean anything different to you? Oh, say can you see 
by the dawn's early light. What so proudly we hailed at the twilight's last gleam. Whose broad stripes and bright stars through the perilous fight. Over the ramparts we watched were so gallantly streaming. And the rocket's red glare, the bombs bursting in air. Gave proof through the night that our flag was still there. Oh, say does that star-spangled banner yet wave over the land of the free and the home of the brave. Words have meaning. And this is where I tell you the last thing for this week of how we save our nation. And I know I'm not American yet, but we need to know our history. We need to know where we have come from. Americans are a unique breed. Whether you love us or hate us, we are a unique breed. Our history is different. Are we perfect? No. No set of people has ever been perfect. And I'll give you a spoiler alert. Any generation in the future or any set of people, whether it's a country we know today or whether there's a new country formed, will they be perfect? No. Why? Because people are ultimately flawed. But you know what? I will put the idea of America up against any generation or any country, past or present, or even into the future. We need to start telling the stories because the American people are a unique breed. They're brave. They're humble. They know what their country means. And they know it is worth dying for. And this is where I hit you with a really tough question. And it's the last question of the day. To all those people who were, you got to stand for the national anthem. And were the most vocal about it. And sometimes the most hostile on that side about it. Would they have been willing to make the price of the people of Fort Wayne? Would they have risked their lives knowing it was a certain death, that the flag meant so much that it cannot fall? Would they make that sacrifice? You see, America, it's easy to say, oh, I love America, and, you know, I'm all in for America. We need to get to a point where it's deeds, not words. Words are so easy. They come off the tongue, especially with American history. They roll off the tongue. Oh, I believe this and I believe that. All the cliches. But do your actions back up your words? If we want to start solving America's problems, we need to talk politics. We need to focus on politics. Not on this show, but on other shows. On how to vote and where to vote and when to vote and all these different things. But if we truly want to save America, the biggest change we can make is within ourselves. Know your history. I hope today's show has given you something to think about and something to reflect upon. If nothing else, I hope me telling that story of your national anthem gave you a bit of love that stirred some emotion in there that said, you know what, we are pretty special. And the next time I hear the national anthem, I will remember some of the things John said the meaning behind us. Don't forget, next week, in the next two weeks, a great reset special. If you've got questions, DM them to me. I'll do my best to answer every one of them on the show. But always remember this. 
America is great because Americans are good. America is great because Americans are good. Until next Saturday at 12 noon Eastern, have a beautiful and blessed week. Stream and subscribe to more Blaze Media content at theblaze.com slash podcasts.